she did what black women always do, right? Which is she rang the motherfucking alarm on some injustice. She let the world know that mass hysterectomies were being performed in these ICE detention centers, which we now know house a disproportionate number of Black people. Yeah. She must be protected, like... Absolutely. Black women, we stay throwing our bodies onto grenades mm-hmm. that other people be taking the pins out of. Welcome to the Zoris Daughters podcast. It's your sis, Alyssa, one Canadian Jamaican woman, anthropology PhD student who is masked up at all times, <laughs> currently staying alive and staying black in New York City. Ooh, such a, such a brilliant thing to say these days. Uh, I'm Brendan. <laughs> I'm a black American Southern woman trying to pay her bills, child decorate her house, and do socially distanced field work based in Baltimore. Okay, all right. So today we're going to be unpacking reproductive rights, necropolitics, and immigration with our three segments. What's the word? What we're reading? And what in the world? Thank you to our donors, Faye, Amson, Severin, Cassie, Akshay, hey Akshay, uh, and Latasia. Thank hey, you Tej. so much. Uh, your support is invaluable. And if you're listening now and you're like, well, I don't have no money. It's okay. You don't have to give us your money to support us, right? If you would like to follow us on social media, you can find us at Zora's Daughters on Instagram and Zora's underscore daughters on Twitter. And if you would like us to host a virtual workshop on Black feminist anti-racism for your business or your organization, you can book us by emailing Zora's Daughters Pod at gmail.com. Also, if you teach and you want us to come in and talk to your class, like we're down to do that too. We're so down. <laughs> Another way you can support us is if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, just p- pause us for a second, get us out of your ear just for one second, and leave us a five star rating and review and let the world know how dope you think we are. Because whoever lime bean for Jesus is. And it's like, Mayada, girl, is that you? I just want to know. <laughs> anyway, lime bean for Jesus, we thank you for our first and so far only review. So if you're us- using that platform to listen and rate it, or any other platform where you can rate and review, please do that because it helps massively with helping other people find our podcast. And so if you've watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix, I don't know, Brendan, if you've seen it yet, but Mm -hmm. you know, all of this kind of like visibility stuff is determined by some algorithm and those algorithms algorithms are made by nerdy white dudes in Silicon Valley and these Mm -hmm. algorithms are racist. So, you know, just just help these sisters out, you know? Please. (laughs) So we actually zoomed into a class at NYU. What's up, y'all? Hey. This week, and we got a really great question about our name. A student asked why we chose daughters over another kinship term and, you know, why we chose to kind of evoke kinship as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, I just did my very like blunt thing. And I just said, it's just some hella black shit that black people do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we say, hey, sis. Men say, what's up, son, to their peers. You know, we call our elders auntie. 
And, you know, Zora's nieces wouldn't have had the same ring to it, even though, you know, we might call her auntie. But, you know, Brendan, you had much more nuanced response. (laughs) (laughs) It's also because I I was like, let me pause and think about this. But yeah, um, you know, you did the Aquarius. Let me jump on in and and give it to you straight kind of thing. (laughs) Um, And yeah, so I think first I seconded your blunt response about it being black shit like I was like yeah black people and indigenous folks have yeah. been making kin for centuries without the need for this kind of these blood relations right and blood especially for us you know new world folks out here who might not know our descendants right it doesn't really do much uh, for dictating whom we might call family and if we're being real about it, like blood mainly matters in a capitalist society for two reasons. It's to help you determine who gets your property um, and who is allowed to reproduce. Right? Yeah. So like white property men need to know who to give their land to and honestly, whom not to marry. And if you are thinking of a Jay Springer joke, here, I mean, somebody's, <laughs> I'm sure, is Someone thinking where I'm thinking, you know, um, especially when thinking about whom not to marry. But in relation to daughters, right, I think about daughters as a relationship with possibility for expansion and extension. Right? As a new generation, we are, of course, indebted to those that come before us. Like We are indebted to our mother, Zora. But being a daughter allows us to take her legacy into new places. And so we're a part of that legacy and we also have the ability to create our own. And nieces also just sounded a little too distant for me, Um, but I feel like daughters just implies a certain type of intimacy. Yes. Yeah, I appreciate that well thought out (laughs) (laughs) response because it would take me like days of writing to come to that, even though, you know, I feel it somewhere deep inside me. I'm always not great at verbalizing and articulating it. So I, I definitely appreciate you for that, being here with me on yeah, the podcast. Well, I'll speak together. Yeah. <laughs> I, lo- I love you, um, first and foremost. <laughs> Let's get that out there. But also just like my work looks at generation two and like generational violence. Yeah. So the writing and stuff I've done and thought about. So, so it's like it's, I've done reading and writing about this and that's probably why I'm able to be like boop 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 here it is yeah, <laughs> here's my answer yeah, yeah so we we're very uh, grateful to that student for that question and yes, you know just you. to have, to have been in that class and and you know been asked some questions that that we hadn't quite you know necessarily thought out and it was useful to really to verbalize and articulate them and just you know, bring them out into the world. So, so that was great. So instead of our <laughs> usual, you know, question of the week, <laughs> we decided <laughs> to introduce a little game. It is what we're going to call the radical version of Fuck, Mary Kill. It's called Defund, Reform, Abolish. And so the game, if you don't know how it's played... <laughs> You're me. (laughs) So usually you are, you know, you choose three people, usually three people that are, you know, nearly indistinguishable. You can't decide between. And you choose one to fuck. Mom, I'm so sorry. (laughs) You choose one to marry and one to kill. So in this case, I'm going to give Brendan three things and she has to decide 
which one to defund, which one to reform, and which one to abolish. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, man. So I have honestly never played this game before. And so I... (laughs) We'll see how it goes. Um, So what are my three choices? All right. Your three choices are the CIA, Mm. National Borders, Mm. and ICE. <laughs> oh, wow! Mm, wow. Okay, don't put don't anybody. Okay, this is not a reflection of my actual politics. It's part <laughs> I'm playing the game. Okay. Um, I could defund one of them. I would definitely defund the CIA. Um, I would defund y'all. Y'all are y'all are done. Reform, I guess, reform national borders, because I feel like that one, you know, why not just reform it away or like, you know, just reform away. You're you're trying to get that loophole in there. (laughs) Um, And abolish ICE, like, fuck them, fuck all that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... Oh, I did not know how to play this game. So I thought that we were like naming our own categories. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just cracking up because I really had no clue. But so I thought we were naming like our own categories to like defund, reform and abolish. And we would like come back with. Um, so I did not have any choices for Alyssa. <laughs> but what I do have are three things that I would like to deform, defund, reform, and abolish. So I really want to defund whoever is giving these ashy, blockheaded niggas the audacity to write checklists for their future wives. Who is paying them? Because you do mm-hmm. not need the money anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and if y'all know who I'm making a reference to, you know how I'm making a reference to, but you defund all of that. No more money. You know, it's gone. Please reform these graduate student pay systems so that they're actually equitable. But honestly, the language yeah. of reform for me is just like, is it useful? Because reform just means you're taking the same the same things and like making it a little different. So mm-hmm. I don't know, but that's a that's a philosophical argument, I feel like. But if we're talking about abolishing, especially this week, abolish the police. The police. They, done. It's it. It's over. There's no, no. And then also abolish debt because, again, I'm trying to pay bills. So abolish the debt. <laughs> like, let's move on. Let's, we're beyond this. It's beyond me. It's above me. It's below me. I just, we got to go. We got to let it go. Mm-mm. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on all of those things. I think the ashy blockheaded dude like uh, <laughs> every, every time I saw that list I was just like first of all I had to ask Bay a lot of questions I was like what's a Proverbs 31 wife oh did you read it I didn't read Proverbs 31 oh, but man, they just she... explained to me that it's like a virtuous wife and then I was like what's an intercessor <laughs> is, that, is that how you say it? an intercessor mm-hmm. yeah and he was so like I'm... The intercessor is Jesus. Like, I don't understand why he's looking for a wife. Oh, that's interesting. So in my, or where I grew up, we, anybody could be an intercessor for someone. Mm. So that's just someone who like, 
goes on your behalf to God. So they pray for you. Um, This could be like a pastor or a friend who you're like, can you intercede for me? I have these issues. So, but yeah, like Jesus is the ultimate intercessor. Right. Yes. Um, I mean, that's how we explain it to like anybody who will pray or, you know, ask for things. I don't know. Do you ask, pray for things on your behalf? That is how he explained it to me. But he said that like Jesus is who we really think of as the intercessor. So Right. in Protestant. Yeah. So that's like, that's so interesting that a Proverbs 31 woman is like a woman who gets up at five o'clock and at the crack of dawn and she is a businesswoman, but also she cleans her house and she never says no to her husband when he wants to do sexual things. She's obviously straighter than straight. She is willing to have children at any point in time, which I think is interesting that this is brought up now that for this episode, especially. Mm-hmm. And yeah, a Proverbs 31 woman. I, I never wanted to be that person. I am frankly, I'm too lazy. Even when I was into like the church, I was like, Oh, this is who I'm supposed to be. I think me and God got to have a conversation because it's not, mm. it's not going to work, especially the getting up at dawn and going to bed at the late night hour to mm, no mm, 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 mm. that's it's really interesting this is another thing that i have been learning a lot about since being in the u.s which is just black american christianity which i find i i actually don't know anyone who goes to church regularly like but from back home anyone my age anyways i think it's kind of something that her parents will get into once they're like, I'm ready yeah. to go home, you know? Yeah. But among my group of friends, at least, I don't really know that many people who go, who go to church regularly, who, who make it a part of their everyday conversation and life. So I, that's another thing that I found really, really interesting since being here in the U.S. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, all of my, well, most of my friends, my close friends were like church. We were church going people and now like all of us are like, oh, church. <laughs> oh, except for one of them, uh, she, Mayada, she actually sings, like does praise and worship and uh. and stuff like that. But yeah, we don't really, it's weird. It's not weird because we're also all, well, mostly all of us are like queer too. So it's just like, oh, like as we all grow in, in our queerness, we're like, oh, it's so interesting how we were such like emphatically church people in college. And now <laughs> we're like, oh, you know, spirituality doesn't have to look this way. It's just so interesting to see how things evolve. But I yeah. think there's like a, a millennial thing, though. Millennials hmm. aren't really at church. I think a lot of us recognize that there are a lot of structural and institutional issues with the church. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, let's let's stay away. Yeah. I mean, that's not really what I'm finding because Bay is Christian and a lot of his friends are in and or from the church. So, mm-hmm. um, so it's been, it's been really interesting and I find them to be super welcoming people and just very, you know, just, I, I think they're great. And I, so I've gone to church a few times, but I feel like I'm opening the door for <laughs> some people you to are. start sending me emails. So I might have yep. to think about <laughs> <laughs> Um. 
Yes, please give us the autonomy to make our um, own religious decisions, please. Uh, thank you. Please and thank you. Um, uh, but on yeah, that, uh, yeah. on that note. <laughs> I know. I'm like, we've got we've to get moving because oh, we've got... We've got a word. We've got a word. We're stretching ourselves mm-hmm. with it. And I think that we've secretly been trying to avoid going to it. <laughs> Probably. So, um, so, Alyssa, what's the word for today? So the word for today is necropolitics. Bom, bom, bom. <laughs> <laughs> so necropolitics was elaborated by Ashil Mbembe. He's a Cameroonian philosopher and post-colonial theorist who holds appointments at the University of Witts in Johannesburg and Duke University. Oh, Duke. Mm. Dum-dum-dum. <laughs> uh, Dum-dum-dum, Duke. Um, it's a great place to talk about death. But what, so what does necropolitics <laughs> mean? <laughs> what does necropolitics mean? To break it down, necro, uh, which is the prefix, is a Greek prefix that means death. So an example of another word that uses necro would be necrosis or necromancy, which is the act of raising the dead. And if you recall in a previous episode, we explained the shorthand for politics as being power over. So necropolitics means power over who lives and who dies. And that is the Cliff Notes version of how to think about this concept. I think breaking them down into the prefix and everything, that, that really helps when you're trying to understand and also remember definitions of words is if you look up the roots of words and then you'll start seeing them everywhere and you'll be like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, this is, at least you know what it's related to. And on that note, I was reading this website and I'm pretty sure it was a Hotep website, <laughs> but so I just many. came across it. <laughs> I just came across it and it said that, um, that Negro also has its roots in the Greek necro. So, you know, the Afro-pessimists were clearly onto something in regards to the whole black equals death thing. Mm. But, yeah. mm. but you know, don't, don't, uh, <laughs> don't cite me on that one. Please. <laughs> um, but yes, so as we've said before, academia is a conversation. And so to really get into necropolitics, we actually first have to talk about Michel Foucault. Foucault is a French philosopher, probably heard people talk about him. Yeah, I call him Fouki. Fuki. Fuki. I like I'm it. Like it's, like little, <laughs> it's like a little kooky, <laughs> but kooky. Kooky. Fuki. Oh my gosh. That's yes. so, <laughs> <laughs> so in any case, so biopolitics, that was a Foucauldian concept. And he was thinking about how states govern populations by essentially coaching us. And he used another word. He was talking about governmentality, but we're essentially coached or trained to manage and regulate our own behavior. So biopolitics then is the management of life and populations to ensure that we sustain, multiply, and order the lives that are within the state. So Foucault, he really dismissed this idea of necropolitics. He was concerned Mm -hmm. with the history of Europe, of course. So he argued that the mark of modernity is actually moving on from a sovereign and a sovereign being a king or another kind of ruler. So a sovereign exercising power through violence and the threat of death, which is what he considered necropolitics. And so modernity is moving on from that type of, that way of exercising power and on to the administration of life by exercising power over physical and political bodies. Right. And so Foucault does 
say that racism functions as an easy metric to determine who the state makes live and whom it lets die. So since he's Eurocentric, because Europe is the center of his world, right? These mm-hmm. races are actually different ethnic and national groups. Uh, so race provided the justification for an unequal distribution of power among these groups. And then it determined which groups were going to be seen as lesser. Mm. And for those of you who have read Fuki, uh, you might also hear the term biopower referenced a lot in, in his works. And the difference between biopower is that biopower is actually the technology or the techniques involved in accomplishing this objective of sustaining and controlling life. So thinking about different forms of medicine, right? Or mm-hmm like the CDC, which monitors disease and monitors like how people are infected and who is infected and how. Or the census. Or the census, which are instruments of, and technologies of biopower that allow for us to understand populations and what's happening to populations. And then biopolitics is the actual style of governing that regulates these populations through all of these different techniques. Right. So biopolitics, it was... He considered it necessary to capitalist development and the continued functioning of capitalism. So maternity leave is actually a really good example of biopolitical governance. Mm. Society recognizes having children as a social good, right? Because it produces future laborers. It maintains, it maintains the population level so that, we continue, so that we can continue to have labor and produce capital. And so governments, in this sense, they offer an incentive to creating, sustaining, and multiplying life. There we go. Okay. See what I there? See what I, I did see. There? <laughs> I'm picking up what you're putting down. <laughs> yeah, so Mbembe felt that Fuki's notion of biopower was insufficient to account for the continued necropolitical techniques of democracies that we will be discussing Of course, we'll be discussing that later. Mm -hmm. Additionally, as Saidiya Hartman and other Afro-pessimist scholars have argued, transforming human life into a fungible object of value, which we saw in the creation of the slave, right, was central to development of capitalist economies. Mm -hmm. Of course, of course, white-ass Foucault ignores the whole like necropolitical techniques of colonial slavery and expansion which totally could like created the conditions of possibility for Western capitalism. Of course he's going to ignore that. Well, I mean, you know, he did because then he would actually have to give credit to the black scholars that he stole from, but uh, uh, still out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Mbembe was, you know, let's get back to Mbembe. Uh, He was very clear that sovereignty does not only reside right in the power to make live and let die as Fuki argued, He writes that the ultimate expression of sovereignty resides in the power and the capacity to date who may live and who must die. Mm -hmm. So he explains that weapons and other forms of terror and destruction create death worlds, which is a form of social existence in which people live with small and large doses of death. Right. Oh, it's it's the small doses that I think people often ignore, but Mm -hmm. we we will get to that. But fundamentally necropolitics is any kind of device, laws, measures that are created for the purpose of eliminating or controlling human populations. So death, and that can mean physical death, but it can also mean social or political death. Mm. It becomes an experience that structures our everyday life. 
So the COVID-19 pandemic is a perfect and of course deplorable example of necropolitics. If you think about it, who was allowed to live and who was forced to die? So states made mm -hmm. these decisions to proactively end lives, right? They sent right. poor and vulnerable people back to work for the economy, quote, y'all can't see my air quotes, but I'm air quoting. <laughs> <laughs> they failed to protect the elderly, the disabled, unhoused folks, and society in that sense, in that time, and in that moment, in this moment that we are still in, society is making very clear who needs to survive and who doesn't. Right. And the powers that be are very clear about who they think needs to be alive and who doesn't, um, mm -hmm. especially when the data showed that Black people were dying at three times the rate. Uh, that was when we saw an acceleration of the push of a populist push for folks to no longer quarantine or yeah. self-quarantine. Mm -hmm. But some of the ways that we experience necropower is through state terror. So populations are repressed, they're persecuted, imprisoned, or killed to neutralize political dissent, which means people who fight against this necropolitical regime are killed, essentially. And that can be mm -hmm. through slow deaths, of course, um, small deaths, as, as we mentioned earlier, but also large doses of death. And one anthropologist who I think does an excellent job of examining necropolitics and necropower is Kristen Smith. She is a Black feminist anthropologist at UT Austin. Wonderful, wonderful woman. Um, and she argues in her book, Afro Paradise, which is Blackness, Violence, and Performance in Brazil, that embodied practice of violence like police violence are spectacles of racialization which means you know determining races um and that produce and articulate the moral and social boundaries of the nation hmm. so these necropolitical powers not only relegate people to death but they also dictate like affective which is like emotional um, and also presentations of emotion Mm -hmm. relationships that we have with different groups of people and actually through relegating certain folks to death we we are actually show that these people deserve to die so that language right. around who deserves to die and who deserves to live is molded through necropolitics and necropower yeah. in states i wonder if what savannah shangay said yesterday at the let anthropology burn talk what kind of relates to that like what she was talking mm -hmm. about with brianna taylor and the recent indictment or was he charged he was so he was charged um Brett Hankinson. with wanton endangerment so he was yeah. charged he was charged for the bullets that went to the neighbors right but not for the bullets that killed into Brianna Taylor Brianna Taylor so uh Shange was basically saying that by making the wanton endangerment unreasonable it makes the murder the death of Breonna Taylor reasonable. Mm -hmm. And so I think that kind of relates to what you were just saying about, you know, by relegating these people to death, it means that their death is justified. Yes. And it, and it's justified and also sustains the state. So it's like, you mm -hmm. can't imagine the state existing as such without some population being relegated as disposable. Right. Um, and so, and Foucault kind of talks about that when he talks about racism, but I think Mbembe and other Black scholars really take 
up this understanding of biopower and necropolitical power and really say, no, this is what makes the state a state through the way that it can dictate who lives and who dies. And especially with these technologies that are used now um, to help or to aid in, Mm -hmm. in that. But necropower and necropolitics is not just something that's restricted to countries that have autocratic or totalitarian regimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are not just relegated for countries with dictators. We've seen this in the U.S. um, now, especially now and and in the past, in in the 60s and 70s, with protesters who were imprisoned around the country. Uh, And Mbembe also, in this article, names the plantation and the apartheid state as examples of necropolitical politics that work. Mm Uh, the plantation, of course, we know who was relegated to die on the plantation, but also interesting how the plantation works because they try to preserve life, quote unquote, as much mm-hmm. as possible. But I think it was a, there was a different kind of death. Yeah. Because, he, I mean, he was also thinking with uh, with a gombin. Yes, yes. Sorry, y'all, we're about to nerd out. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, should I put a gombin in? Oh, oh, Lordy. But then I was like, but then I was like, you know, do we want to start the whole bear life, is black life, bear life conversation? And it, uh, and if you know what we're talking about, then sorry, we're about to nerd out. But yeah, I mean he's thinking he was also thinking with a gombin. So mm-hmm. it wasn't just these physical deaths, right? It was also political deaths in which you have mm-hmm. in which you have no rights and you also can be killed without any consequences for that. So I think in that sense there was an attempt to preserve life and also multiply life, but then there was there was a social death in that you could be killed and nobody was going to face any consequences for it on the plantation. Right. And there are a lot of black scholars who do work on the plantation, on the plantational scene and just thinking about the ways that we see modern iterations of the plantation. And I mean, the apartheid state is is one example. The the U.S., I definitely believe the U.S. is an apartheid state. And then also another example that Mbembe gestures towards, but doesn't really delve deeply in, in my opinion, um, mm-hmm. was the Israeli occupation of Palestine as another example of necropolitical politics and power at work. Another example, because there are so we've, we've got a lot of examples. <laughs> <laughs> another example, plenty of them in the world, um, is through the exploitation of natural resources. So we talked about environmental racism here. And mm-hmm. if you think about the indigenous peoples in the Amazon who are being displaced and eliminated by their various organizations in order to gain their land um, and, you know, to, for lumber and things like that. Um, so essentially, all boils down to, right, colonization breaks open and capitalism, I would say, co- colonization and capitalism breaks open the ground for necropolitical regimes by creating systems of power that dictate who can live and who must die. And mm-hmm. in many places around the world, the people who must die are Black and or Indigenous. Yeah, actually having this conversation now, it's really made me realize that for some people, the state is biopolitical. And for other people, the state is necropolitical. So, and I think that we really see that with what we're reading today. Mm-hmm. So Brendan, what are we reading today? <laughs> we are reading, oh, my girl, uh, Racism, Birth Control and Reproductive Rights in Women, Race and Class by Angela Davis. I just... Angela Davis. Let's have a moment. 
another 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 Aquarius queen. What? <laughs> hey, we are just we're gonna have to get a Gemini on here at some point. <laughs> oh, I don't I don't know. I don't, mm, well, um, uh, okay. Um, I just there there is not enough time to talk about Angela Davis and do her life and her work justice, but <sighs> we will try. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So Angela Davis is a political activist, author, and professor emerita at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She received her PhD in philosophy from Humboldt University in Berlin. And when I read that, I was like, wow, like in the last episode or two episodes ago, I was like, I don't know any black philosophers. <laughs> yeah, it's so Not interesting bad. what is considered philosophy. Yeah. I think it's just another, another question. question. But. Um, so she's the author of over 10 books, including Women, Race, and Class, Our Prim our prisons obsolete and freedom is a constant struggle ferguson palestine and the foundations of movement and she has recently again uh been named as one of time 100's most influential people yes and i have had the pleasure of meeting her I in person <laughs> uh, and like i have a picture that i will hold on to for dear life um Girl, why is it not like printed and framed? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, actually, I might need to do that because I just, I just, I was sitting so close to her too. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. I just, and she was like talking to me. She answered my questions. I, <gasps> oh, anyway. <laughs> um, in this essay, which was published in 1983, Davis provides us with the history of the birth control movement, and she contextualizes why Black, Indigenous, and other women of color and working class women were resistant to the birth control movement in the 1970s. And so she historicizes this movement by going back to slavery and saying, Enslaved Black women regularly used abortive and infanticidal techniques to avoid bringing another person into this world as a slave. And I know for some, this might seem controversial, but we have to remember that abortion and birth control is a fundamental human right. Black enslaved women were not considered to be human beings with rights. Uh, their bodies were exploited and often uses breeding factories for the next generation of exploited labor. So one form of resistance against this was to stop, like this is, this is a form of stopping labor, like reproductive mm -hmm. labor is labor. And this was a form of them protesting against that labor by using abortion and infanticide right. um, to, to escape the horrors of slavery. Right. And, you know, she's, she quotes different doctors and all of these like old resources of people kind of documenting the lives of enslaved people. And so one of the things that I saw was a, there was a doc, doctor who was like documenting enslaved women. He said that they were quote, destroying offspring. And just the way that it was described, you could tell mm -hmm. that it was serving to further support his and other white people's belief that black people were less than human. Mm -hmm. And so they just couldn't grasp that there were systemic political reasons for, for aborting your fetus. And those were like the oppressive conditions of slavery. It's like one plus one equal two. Like, no, not one. <laughs> no, never mind. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> but, but that incomprehensibility, it continued right up until the 70s, right? Like white women simply could not fathom why women of color wouldn't unite around this issue. They kind of attributed 
their suspicions towards birth control to, to like a certain irrationality rather than a history of genocide masquerading as birth control, right? So it's just mm-hmm. another way that these movements excluded the experiences of women of color and like and reinforced that women's liberation was only for white women. Yeah, I would say that, I guess my thing of like saying, oh, one plus one equals two is just like, you know, thinking about how I think people don't really understand or grasp the horrors of slavery and mm-hmm. how in some ways, in some ways care work can mean, especially for people who have uteruses that choose to have, you know, or, or don't want to have like a child, bring a child into this world because of the horrors of slavery. Like slavery was something that's so horrible that I think our minds can't even imagine. And so <laughs> all that to say, like, when we think about the the origins of the birth control movement and the ways in which birth control have been has been employed or deployed in certain communities, it's important to remember that conditions differ for different types of communities, especially those who experience necropolitical terror. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're thinking historically, which Davis is always thinking historically, she always reminds us um, as as a communist, as a as a Marxist scholar, she reminds us about materialism and thinking about the facts. Um, and so, <laughs> and I'm using air quotes because you know, facts mean different things to different people. But she also continues by saying, after the emancipation of enslaved people, and with that like concurrent growth in urban cities, white women began to advocate more strongly for the birth control movement because they realized. Like, okay, nobody's trying to have all these kids in the city mm-hmm. um, when it's like, you know, that's actually, if you're living in a tenement or something, right, having 11 kids in a two-room tenement is not, is not conducive to a good life. Whereas living on the plantation or living in a farm, you need children to do labor. Um, and so she talks about how these white women most of the middle to upper class start this birth control movement as a way to regain quality of life um, and allow them to have better opportunities and more economic opportunities in these urban cities. But she also notes that the major failure of of the mostly white and mostly middle to upper class birth control movement was this failure to recognize that black women and other women of color have long histories with forced sterilization Mm-hmm. and other genocidal practices at the hands of the state. So in the 1970s, this movement was not willing, as you mentioned, right, is not willing to recognize that there's actually an entire history that would cause Black and other women of color to be suspicious of this. And historically, right, this movement was deeply entangled with the eugenics movement. Uh, which advocated for the forced sterilization of unfit human beings for the good of the human race. Yeah, exactly. So what is eugenics? So eugenics, it's a pseudoscience. It took Charles Darwin's Mm -hmm. theory of natural selection and grossly applied it to humans. And so essentially it's the philosophy and practice of how to arrange reproduction to increase the, the occurrence of desirable characteristics Mm. in a population, but it's also Mm. there to exclude inferior people from the gene pool, again, using air quotes. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so they do this by breeding out, good lord, by breeding out- This language, all this language is disgusting. (laughs) By breeding out disease, disability, and essentially difference, right? So Mm -hmm. 
they were just doing they were on some they're on some wild stuff. Hitler got his his eugenics ideas and and techniques from America. Let's just let's just put it that way. Yeah, uh, the United States was definitely the blueprint um, yeah. for for this, and we'll we'll explain how and why. Um, yeah, so eugenics, really, if we want to boil it down, um, is kind of this lost understanding of cause and effect, right? It says that the most fit people are then the most genetically advanced people. And so these people, especially during that time period, were white, middle to upper class people. And then the least fit were black people because they didn't have technological advances or other things. And so eugenics argues that the wealth, longer life expectancy and better economic opportunities that white people experience is because of their genetic predisposition as opposed to the systemic genocide and exploitation of people of color all over the world. Right. And these ideas were like basically imported into the birth control movement and influenced it greatly. So what movement that initially started out as white women advocating for themselves to be able to control their reproductive lives, then morphed into a movement that dictated what black and other people of color should and would be able to do. Mm -hmm. And so they formed, um, there were lots of racist organizations back in the day that did a lot of big things. Um, And some of them founded colleges, but that's not, you know, that. So the American Birth Control League called for birth control in black communities because black people were the least fit population we could not raise our kids. We were having kids all willy-nilly. And thus, that meant that we should not be able to reproduce freely. Yeah, the way that they described it, what was it that they said? That, that we were breeding carelessly and mm-hmm. disastrously. Like... <laughs> and it's like, ha- what? Ha- it's just like, I don't... Okay. And I think that <laughs> the wildest thing about the eugenics movement at that time period was just that the characteristics that they were trying so hard to breed out, they weren't biological or genetic. They were social. They were just like, oh, they live in ghettos because of this, or they live in poverty because they are inferior people. And it's like, no, they live in poverty because of Jim Crow segregation slavery mm-hmm. and reconstruction and all these other fucked up things that, <laughs> that you did. Right. And it's like the only reason why you don't like you don't live in poverty is because of all these fucked up things that you did. Exactly. Um, and so it's such, yeah, reading this essay, it was just like really illuminating because Davis does an, an artful job of really showing us how birth control and the birth control movement moves and morphs um, from being this initial place where you move from this like every person with a uterus has an individual right to birth control to becoming this racist strategy for population control. So we see this biopolitical slash necropolitical politics at work. Birth control became a right for the rich Right. It became a, a right for the rich white women, but yeah. it became a duty for the poor. Like as black 
women, they had a duty to society to control the number of people they had in their families. Mm-hmm. And this duty was actually state-funded and state-sanctioned, like Davis tells us this and shows us this. So states all over the U.S. instituted policies that called for the forced sterilization of these unfit populations, and they received federal funding to do so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, scores, hundreds of thousands of disabled folks, of Black folks, of poor folks were targeted, and Black women especially were Mm -hmm. targeted for these birth control strategies. So one example David Davis gives us is that women who were on welfare, who had too many children, and it was like some doctors were like, if you have more than two children, you have too many children. They were forced to <sighs> undergo sterilization in order to continue receiving their welfare, welfare checks. And one example that really like I was floored when reading was these two black girls in Montgomery, Alabama, Minnie Lee and Mary Alice, who were sterilized at the ages of 12 and 14. Mm. And it's just like, what, like a child, like you literally took body parts out of a child. Yeah, like you, you've taken their options and their choices away in regards to something that they didn't even understand at the time. They and- and her mother didn't understand because right. she couldn't read. And then they just said, put, put an X here. And she thought it was to continue the birth control that they were receiving. Right. The birth control that later was discovered to cause significant health problems. Yes. Um, so, yeah, which is like Dep- Deprovera. I think Deprovera. Deprovera. And Depo might still be available on it's the market. Yeah. Ooh, and I you uh, just think that. It's horrible. Like, is there is is it any wonder that black people are suspicious and skeptical of doctors and of studies and of anything that the government tells them is good? It tell, tells us is good for us, right? And it's like, okay, y'all, I want to be very clear about this because I realize y'all like we haven't thrown any dates out there, but it's not like this was happening in the nineteenth century. Like this was not happening. 1890, 19, you know, 20, whatever. This was happening as late as 1972. Well, we're going to get even more recent than that. (sighs) Yes, Davis. So Davis talks about how, um, and she provides the numbers for us. Like in 1972, the U.S. funded between 100,000 to 200,000 forced sterilizations. Like the federal government paid and put money in doctors' pockets for oh, for over a hundred thousand for sterilizations. But but, South- but tell them, tell them the comparison. <laughs> so, okay, They're like oh, that's not that bad. Just oh, okay. Listen, one, mind you, this was one year. The Nazis sterilized two hundred and fifty thousand people over the course of their fascist regime. So the U.S. sterilized almost as many people in one year that the Nazis, which we point to, right? This fascist regime mm-hmm. is something that is truly horrible, right? Over the course of their entire regime. Uh, so when we got to think about that, right? When we point to the Holocaust as this unfathomable event of genocide and terror, which it is, I mm-hmm. want to affirm definitely yeah. that I agree it is. 
we have to remember that the U.S. provided all the blueprint for that. The U.S. was like, hey, here's this eugenics thing. Why don't you try it over there? Why don't you try it over there? Yeah, they came, they came to study segregation. All of, you know, they, they basically came and just studied what the U.S. was doing and then replicated it, took it to whole new levels. Well, I should say took it to a more obvious level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like definitely used necropolitical techniques to exterminate groups of people who were deemed unfit. And and so what we see now is, I would say definitely, it's this reconceptualization of history that erases the U.S.'s role in developing Mm -hmm. eugenics and developing necropolitical technologies that were exported all over the world, but were solidified and perfected through Black women's bodies. Yeah. But also... Davis points us to the violence that happened, um, the sterilization violence that happened in indigenous communities as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, so, and, and we, can't, we can't pretend that this was just an American thing, right? Mm-hmm. Canada has a documented history of the same. So between 1966 and 1976, more than a thousand indigenous women were sterilized. Remember, the, the population of Canada is much smaller than the U.S. is. Mm-hmm. But in both countries, in the U.S. and Canada, they did stop promoting sterilization policies, but they never made them illegal. And so in 2017, okay, three years ago, 60 Indigenous women in Saskatchewan, they launched a lawsuit for being pressured to sign consent forms for tubal ligations. It was mm-hmm. almost like the exact same thing that, that Davis talks about. People thought that they were reversible. You know, nobody was really clear about what it was that they were signing for. And so now they're demanding damages and reform to the healthcare system. And so I'm never going to knock universal healthcare because I think that it is so necessary. Every country should have it. But what we see built into the system is the definition of systemic racism. So even if there are no racists, I'm sure none of the people who had them sign these consent forms would call themselves racist. The structure was still working against these indigenous women. And so it means that Racism isn't just about bad people doing bad things, but through a history of colonization, you know, through Canada's Sexual Sterilization Act, which was literally on the books, mm. and these other eugenicist ideas, they kind of they shape structures and policies that we see today in healthcare, education, and beyond. So these problems are built into the system itself. Although someone, mm. some people say that we can't really that systemic racism is too hard for us to understand. I just explained it. Ooh. Ooh, That's a subtweet, (laughs) y'all. It is a subtweet. Um, And it's like, yeah, like she's talking about these sterilizations that are fairly federally funded and free, but abortion and birth control are not. So what you see is that the women who are mostly white, middle and upper class who are able to afford abortions and birth control, having access to them while poor women, black women, indigenous women having to go through the route of the free option, which is a permanent, you are not able to reproduce. And over time, right, that she talks about women in Puerto Rico, where that literally took out the possibilities for a generation of women in Puerto Rico. Um, mm. That was, that was, that really threw me off. I, I was just, they were basically, I, I don't remember who it was that did the research, but um, Davis writes about them in the article, just that within, 
within te- if this if this kind of like level of sterilization continues for it was maybe 10 years there would be no more puerto ricans just what yeah and it's like this is horror it's it's literally terrorizing and it's horror and it's real and it's happening mm -hmm. it's still happening yeah um i mean and a lot of it comes from is money it's it's related to Mm -hmm. money right so we see that issue about the federally funded sterilizations in Canada too. So the federal government pays for certain First Nations health benefits like birth control, but then the provinces, they pay for surgery and procedures. So when doctors perform hysterectomies or tubal ligations, the province actually makes money and then the federal government doesn't have to pay for the birth control anymore. So it's like, it's a win, win, except for the people for whom it affects. It's messed up. Yo. <laughs> Why is the world so fucked up? I just... Why is it like this? I, you know, well, <laughs> no. Speaking of things that happened today, I mm. think um, we should move to mm-hmm. our what in the world. Like, girl, like, what? What? What in the, in the world? world is happening? Oh. Um among all the other things that are happening yeah. right now. And this kind of low-key feels like old news. Low-key, considering all the things I that mean, have happened this week. Jeez, <laughs> oh, I know. Unfortunately. We, you know, it's, we're a bi-weekly podcast. We do what we can. Uh, but, and it's, yeah. but we, have to, we have to get this attention. Yeah. Um, so, we, have to, we have to. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. So, so everyone is talking about ICE and immigration detention. And we're going to get to why, of course. I'm just going to say it, the mass hysterectomies. We're going to talk about that. But I want to spill the real tea, mm-hmm. which is that in past years, the images of cages and detention centers full of brown children and adults were being disseminated. I actually learned that Almost half of the families in ICE detention are Haitian. They're black. And this is not an image that you see on the news. Like you don't, you don't see black people in immigration detention. You just assume that they are all, that they are all from South Central American countries. Mm-hmm. And actually a lot of them are Caribbean and African. Mm-hmm. And I was super surprised about this. And I remember when the uprisings were just happening and there were some Latinx folks tweeting, oh, where were, you know, why are we standing up for black people? Where were they when, you know, our children were being put in cages? And I was just like, oh, I don't know, climbing up the, up the Statue of Liberty in protest. That's what But also are. sitting right there with your kids in <laughs> detention. So exactly. And are not visible because... I mean, are, do our images elicit sympathy and outrage? Mm, exactly. So I think that it's just, and it blows my mind that white supremacy means that people in power can take something that is already deplorable and then make it absolute shit for black people. <laughs> how like do you how- do that? How do y'all consistently 
make the bar hell like how to, for black folks like how how and it's like you know what i'm not gonna say what i was gonna say because i was gonna be like <laughs> anyway the, ba- the, um, the bar is below the floor but <laughs> below the floor. they keep lowering it but it's just like okay so one because of over policing in black communities black immigrants are at a higher risk of deportation two the longest ICE records on, de- on ICE detentions on record are for Black people. And there was one that was nearly 10 years, a Rwandan oh person. My. 10 what? years. And so because apparently they launch these investigations into African immigrants' documents and they take forever. And also freedom is more expensive for Black people. So bonds are actually 54% higher for Haitians than the average. So they actually end up staying in detention while others may be released on bond. So Yo, what there's the that. Hell? What the hell? Yo. <sighs> and then, <sighs> and then immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean are deeply overrepresented in solitary confinement. So they make up 4% of the people in ICE detention, but they are represented, at least this was, this was between, I believe... I can't remember the years, but I think it was up until 2017. So they, rep- but they represent 24% of all of the solitary confinements. And we all know, we know from people like Khalif Browder, that solitary confinement is the worst form of torture, is one of the worst yes. forms of torture out there. I'm pretty sure that like UN conventions recognize it as a form of torture. So mm-hmm. this is just another example of, Necro, of necropower, right? The camp form. Mm-hmm. And we can think about like these camps as also being ghettos, refugee camps, prisons. They're a way of controlling undesirables, right? And mm-hmm. it allows for a militarized state to control and harass and kill people. And it, it means that certain groups of people, disenfranchised people, marginalized people, we live in a permanent condition of living in pain, which is also which is also necropolitical, right? Right, right. And it's, child, the ways, the small and large forms of death again. And so Mm -hmm. this document, there's documents on the ICE website where they actually removed people whose origins were unknown. So they are actually detaining people and there's no knowledge of if they're actually like where they're actually from. So there's no way to actually deport them to anywhere. Cause it's like, you know, where they're going to go. But like, it's also just like, where did they go? Um, exactly. they were removed. It, it said they were removed. So I'm like, so where, where did they go? Like you just send them to, you're like, Oh, well, it kind of sounds like he has a French accent. So he must be from one of the French speaking West African countries. And you just send them there. Yeah. And it's like, this is also ridiculous because it's the most of the people who are living in the U.S. past, like undocumented are folks who overstayed visas from like countries of like Europe in certain countries in Asia. Mm-hmm. But these you are know, the people who are not targeted for this type I was, of... I was looking at the numbers. There were over 300 Canadians removed in one year there were four swiss people 
one year. I was like, Swiss people are out here overstaying visas and shit, committing yeah. crimes on your visas. Um, I mean, obviously, the numbers are nowhere near, um, you know, people from African, Central, and South American countries and Caribbean countries. But uh, I, I, I was... I was surprised at the numbers, nevertheless, which yeah. is also an interesting thing to look into within myself. Like, why is it that I expected these certain numbers to be high and then other numbers not to exist? Right. The question. Well, I mean, I think it speaks to an understanding of the system and how it operates um, and who it protects and who it doesn't protect. And yeah, even. I don't know, maybe I'm imagining things, but I feel like there was, wasn't there a call put out at one point in time where they're like, oh, if you need to renew your visas and you're from this, this, and this country, make sure you do it. Like, you know, no penalty or something. I don't know. Maybe that's my imagination. Sometimes I dream hmm. things that don't <laughs> actually happen. But I remember learning that um, and learning about domestic violence for immigrant women and how often it is for them to they come over 90 day fiance style and and endure a lot of domestic violence and so yeah yeah just learning about the politics of like green cards and stuff like that but it, most of the people who are here and they're undocumented oh just overstay or i mean and we know there are people who are fleeing violence and mm-hmm. haitian people are like the second most denied folks um, for asylum. And so it's the first being folks, people from Mexico. And Mm -hmm. so it's just like how these racist, anti-Black, like necropolitical politics just weave themselves in and out of this government institution, which mind you is, is not has not always been here. Like ICE mm-hmm. is not something that we can't, we can just be like, oh, it's always been here. Like the constitution, people can't seem to imagine letting the constitution go. But it's just <laughs> like, ICE is not in the constitution. ICE was created literally in this century, mm-hmm. like right after 9-11. So like we can, we can do away with this. Yeah. But The world survived without it. I mean, yes, not only survived, but it would just be just a much better yes. place. Um, and so... So um, I want to applaud Don Wooten in this moment. I'm clapping for you. Mm -hmm, Same. We both are. Mm -hmm. Um, Who is a black nurse who was working at an ICE facility in Atlanta. And she did what black women always do, right? Which is she rang the motherfucking alarm on some injustice. Mm-hmm. And she let the world know that mass hysterectomies were being performed in these ICE detention centers, which we now know house a disproportionate number of Black people. Yeah. Just, wow. And oh, she must be protected. Like Absolutely. Black women, we stay throwing our bodies onto grenades mm-hmm. that other people be taking the pins out of. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's just so much in these allegations. I was reading about, you know, about the reports and people were putting excerpts up of the report and all of this, of the, of the allegations and stuff. And I mean, it, there were allegations of detainees drinking out of toilets, this lack of oh medical God. care and food. It's like, it's disgusting to the point of being unbelievable, but then it's also very 
believable. One of the articles I was reading, they uh, took a quote out of the complaint that, that Don Wooten made. And she said that we've questioned among ourselves, like goodness, he's taking out everybody's, he's taking everybody's stuff out. That's his specialty. He's the uterus collector. Good I know God. that's ugly. Is he collecting these things or something? Everybody he sees, he's taking all their uteruses out or he's taking their tubes out. What in the world? End quote. They called the doctor the uterus collector. Like what in the M. Night Shyamalan? What in the J. Marion Sims? What in the... <laughs> what in the Jordan Peele? <laughs> yeah, it's like this is actually this is probably one. a film for like... Yeah, this is like, could be a film plot that they could do so much better than Antebellum. I just want to throw that out. Anyway, so. <laughs> I've been told not to watch it, so. Don't, don't. It's, it's literally, it's so horrible that I, when I heard the uterus collector, I was just like, wow, like unfathomable violence, mm -hmm. but still it exists and it's real. And, it, and it's justified because we have a culture in this country, and my, I say I use we loosely, okay, very loosely, because I, <laughs> I don't believe this, but just like that, there are people who are literally undesirable and disposable, and we have the right to like take away their ability to reproduce. And it's like not all of these women were going to be targeted, who were targeted, and who this violence was exacted on, not all of them probably wanted to have children or like, you know, all like it's, it's like literally the choice is being taken away. And I think also for me though, I was shocked, but like not really. And I feel like yeah. there were people though who were like, what? This is a thing. This yeah. is happening. I, uh, and, you know, they're like, it's 2020. I can't believe that these things are happening. And it's like, <laughs> Yeah, no, this isn't anything new. Like this is the United States is a country that has failed to reckon with its history. Why would you expect anything different? Like to me, it's the 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 shock and I'm not talking about your shock, but it's it's a particular like white liberal shock that I find staggering. It's like I'm really getting on board with kind of refusing that that shock from from white mm -hmm. liberals because it's just like their surprise is actually more ethnographically, here I go, being a nerd, but like is more ethnographically interesting than the actual events, like the events themselves, such as racism and sterilization abuse, you know? It's like, of course, when the most vulnerable people are unprotected from state-sanctioned violence and there are no checks and balances for a structure of power, how could you expect anything else? Like, why is it? What allows you to be surprised? Like, what allows this white innocence? Right. Whiteness studies people. What's, what is it? What is it? Because it's like this innocence that partly structures what it means to be white. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's a, sort, there's a certain type of knowing that comes with being Black, right? Like, there's a certain yeah. knowing that even if I have not heard this story about this type of violence happening... You know, as my as my church folk would say, like my spirit knew, you know, like <laughs> even if I don't know in the flesh, like my spirit knew. Right. And so 
it's, it's, I don't know, it's just so horrible to me, but I, it makes me think about the quote that she said in a previous episode from Joy James and Joe, ooh, I'm going to mispronounce the name. Oh, man. Joao jo- 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 Vargas. I'm, y'all, my Southern education. Um, <laughs> and so where we they talk about like this shock around anti-Black violence and moving past that to really thinking about anti-Blackness as literally underpinning these systems, right? Once we, like, we can move past the shock. And I'm not saying, like, move past understanding or thinking about things is horrible. Yeah, and, it doesn't mean numb yourself. Like, it yeah, it doesn't mean numb, numb yourself. yourself. It, it means moving past this, like, performance and presentation of shock and, like, it, investing all of this emotional energy in an outrage mm-hmm. um, that could be redirected towards you know, uh, some type of political, I don't even know what to say, but like some type of political resistance, I guess is what I'll say. Yeah. And so I think, and I tweeted this, like, I think we spend so much energy being shocked when these systems do exactly what, what they're supposed to do. Mm. And it's like, we yeah. were expecting justice in regards to, you know, Breonna Taylor, like respecting, expecting justice, quote unquote, from the same system that killed her. That doesn't, yeah. That doesn't make sense, but it also speaks to a kind of like hope um, or, you know, some would say cruel optimism, possibly, <laughs> right? Where it's like, we know and we see the state and all of its horrors and what it does. And there's still a belief that it's, if we open ourselves up enough and we appeal enough that it'll change. And it's like, actually, the state thrives on us being open. It thrives on us being exploited it thrives on us having like this mass shock and outrage because it, we're mobilized so, like we can't move past right. it to do something else but we also have to find ways to to grieve as well um in these moments and and like also stand with these women and and one of the things that i also thought about was like the outrage around the ice mass sterilizations died pretty quickly once the information got out about who actually gets detained in these centers. So once a lot of people, similar to what happened with COVID, once people were like, oh, wait, these centers actually really house niggas? Like, oh, okay. And then it was kind of just like, oh, okay. Um, But I think it's important for us, especially as Black feminists, those of us who are activists, those of us who are scholars, who are thinkers, right? To to remember and keep at the forefront of our mind that mass sterilization, along with abortion, along with birth control, right? All of these are reproductive issues that primarily affect Black and or Indigenous populations. And we have to think about like, who is going to fight for us? If not, we ourselves, right? Like we, and it, the answer is we ourselves got to take it up the arms and pick up them arms, pick up them arms, literal, you know, I'm not saying literally if that's not your thing, but like <laughs> we have to fight for ourselves and we have to organize yeah. and change this world. Cause it's not going to change for us. Right. Mm-hmm. We have to change it. Mm. Speaking of scholars and all of these ideas that float around, I think one of them is overpopulation and climate change. And I kind of wish mm-hmm. that we had gotten to this, but I'm, in, in our Anthropocene episode, but I'm kind of glad that it, we are able to, to fit this in here. But the way that people talk about overpopulation as mm. being one of the main drivers um, and like 
the hardest to fix problem in relation to climate change. And so it's just overpopulation is, is a distraction. It's a way to deflect the conversation from capitalism. It's a dog whistle for a racist narrative that says black and brown people are having too many children. So here we go again to this like biopolitical, necropolitical, mm. you know, technology, which is the overpopulation discourse. And then, you know, but when you, if you like read into it, if you're really like, all right, let me go do my research, which not enough people do, as I found out while watching The Social Dilemma. Yeah, <laughs> a second, second plug, we need to Netflix, hit us up, all right? Okay, you know, get us on the, uh, get us on that strong black lead page. Okay, thanks. <laughs> so, you know, how is it that overpopulation is exacerbating the climate crisis when the world's richest 1% contributes double the amount of carbon dioxide emissions than 50% of the world's poorest? Again, 1% of the world's richest, twice the amount of emissions than 50% of the world's poorest. Burn it down. <laughs> Burn it's it like, down. It's like the reason that there aren't enough resources for people on the planet is because a small group of people are fucking hoarding them. Okay. Period. Period. Paradot. Like, I am going to say the thing that Greta Thunberg can't say lest she lose her platform because nobody who wants to be taken seriously on a global stage can utter the C word. The problem is capitalism. And mm. the problem is consumption, okay? Mm. And the rich in this study, like the world's richest 1% that they were talking about, it isn't who we, you know, you and I, people listening to this podcast might think of as rich. To count as the 1% in that study, you only need to be earning $100,000 a year, <laughs> okay? So. <laughs> Yo, yeah, it's because, you know, the yachts and... The pleasure the yacht, oh, it's, it's, it's literally the, the hoarding of resources, okay? The jets. It's capitalism um, accumulation is one of the major drivers of climate change. So don't let people be like, oh my God, no, it's all, it's all the people in Africa and all of the people in India having all these babies. No. I love this. I love this voice. Um. <laughs> <laughs> all this is, all it is, this is, I'm going on my rant now, but like all this is are these like Malthusian ideas in a new outfit and so what, what the hell is Malthusian? So basically, it was this guy in like the 19th century, and he argued that a population will always outgrow its resources. Mm. And he said that there are two ways to check a population. First is preventative checks, so things like postponing marriage or using birth control. And the other side um, is, you know, the positive check. So positive checks, and he doesn't mean positive as in, as in good. He means positive as in like something that is added rather than taken away, right? So you think, you know, I was going to get into some like Pavlovian <laughs> stuff. But I was I mean, like, oh, this is getting so, fancy on us. Yes, adding <laughs> rather than taking away. Uh, the positive checks would be things like famine, disease, and war. And so... This kind of like Malthusian idea was really made clear when people were like, oh yeah, COVID is, uh, it's just, you know, COVID and all of these people dying. It's just the planet's way of getting itself back into equilibrium. <sighs> what? No, it isn't. It's a necropolitical mismanagement of crisis, not some kind of poetic justice launched by Earth. End rant. <sighs> <laughs> 
Yo, I'm glad you got that out there in the world. I I should because at the end of the day, and also that's like the overpopulation argument is what they use for immigration as well, right? It's like mm-hmm. this exhaustion of resources um, through the influx of certain types of people. So some people are good, right? Some people are good to in, to immigrate and yeah. they add, quote unquote, something. Whereas Haitian people, people from Central, South America, c- certain countries in Central and South America, for sure, the browner ones, mm-hmm. for sure, mm-hmm. are labeled as people who drain resources. And so they must be expelled or what's happening, right? It's detained so that they can do some form of labor or be tortured in some way, which is just horrible. And I feel like, I don't know, I just feel like so much of what you just said resonated with me. And so I'm sitting with that, like, first of all, oh gosh, this shit just got to burn down. Like all of it just got to burn exactly. down. Like it's got to, it's, it's got to burn down. <sighs> but on a on a lighter note, we did want to talk about ninety day fiance in the what in the world section. <laughs> we never we never got around to elaborating it, but both of us watch it. And yes. I think the thing one of the things that I mean, and you did talk about like ninety day coming over ninety day fiance style and experience domestic violence, but you know, on a on a lighter note, I just I always find it really fascinating the way that the Americans treat the spouses as mm. though mm. marrying them is a golden ticket to Charlie's mm. Chocolate Factory. Mm. <laughs> but then they be, again, one of those people that need to be defunded because they are actually <laughs> blockheaded and don't have, like, <laughs> like I, I'm not up on, like, the new seasons, but it's honey, all the same stuff. Honey, Paul and Karini, honey, oh. honey, Paul, you not Paul. Okay, wait, no, Paul, <laughs> Paul, you are broke. But on, but also like, where does the generational wealth? Because it's not cheap to get to like fill out the visa and get people over here. No, exactly. They're, oh, in this new season, his mom, his mom cut him off. So she, so he actually came back to the U.S. with Karini and their son. And his mom was like, no, you can't stay with us because I know if you stay with us, you're never going to leave. <laughs> I mean, and he takes her to Walmart and he's like, look at this. You can get two for one, two for one packs of diapers. And she's like, no, Paul, no, we don't need that many diapers. Like, just get the one. We're broke. We have no money. And he's like, but it's two for one if you buy 10. And she's like. No. <laughs> Bye no. Nine, no one free. No. And so they're always just treating America like like it's the there was one season uh with this really it was a really weird couple but she she was a singer and she was 18 and her fiance was 26 and he was from Spain. Oh, I, oh! Yeah, I can't. I can't remember their name. Fundamentalist Christians. Yes. One. Oh <laughs> my god! But her gosh. parents seem like hippies. I was so we. I was so confused. Yeah, but, but um, her parents were also very young too. Yes, but they got it. So they got into an argument, and she was just like, "You're in America. You should feel like you're living the American dream. You're lucky to be here." And he's like, he's like "Do I'm you know where Spain. I'm from? I'm from Spain." It's like we have free education and healthcare, like. 
what are you on about, lady? Like, I'm doing you a favor by being in this weird-ass town in this fucked-up old country. In the middle of nowhere. Exactly. North New England. I, so many things to be said about the way that really just, for me, it's just like, oh, we talked about this last episode, like this fetishization of mm-hmm. these women. And I don't know if you saw, like, I think these women in particular. So the men who are from the U.S. who, like, fetishize women in other countries. The There was one with the black man who was balding, who... Okay, and I'm sorry, y'all. That was just what I noticed from him. I really can't even remember his name. All I remember is that his hairline is disappearing. And he was like, oh, Asian women? I... Those are the ones for me. You know, F my baby mama because oh. and his baby mama was black, of course. Mm-hmm. But it's just like, you know, my baby mama, she was this, she was that. But I got me a good little Asian girl now. And she listens to me. Honey, Rose, wait, no, that's Rose is somebody else. She was not listening. She was mm-hmm. not listening to him. She was like, wait, you ain't got no money? Exactly. You came over here and you can't, you can't buy, you know, pay this dowry. You can't do this, that, and the third. The the way that the men be just like they they glorify the U.S. They fetishize the U.S. And then a lot of the the fiancés they come over and they're like, "Hang on, this is not the America that I was imagining." Because mm. they're in like Colstonburg Town, Pennsylvania. I just made yeah, that yeah, <laughs> living living in the third room in their mama's house, exactly, or in a trailer park, or like. Just in these in these situations where it's it's not the American dream. Some of them don't have jobs. So and I'm just ugh, it is it is awful. It is absolutely it's, awful. It is such, like, it's so awful. I feel like though <sighs> 90 day fiance, someone should do an ethnographic study on it and think about like I want to do it all. Race, gender, mm-hmm. national identity. Just just run through it all and think about the ways that statehood functions like in these areas because these people, these Americans who really don't have it good on this mm-hmm. side, but like will pretend to be this type of provider when they go overseas. Yeah. It just, I don't know, something about masculinity there for somebody mm-hmm. who who wants to write about it. Um, I would prefer to just watch it. <laughs> I know. I think, I feel like every couple could, could be its own essay, could be its own journal article. It's just. Mm-hmm. Thing, the one thing I was going to say is like this power dynamic too. So in the yeah. domestic violence thing, like that power dynamic of this person can't get a job they can't really do much because their visa isn't doesn't allow them to do so. It's just, you see it really play out in the show. So if you would like to join the conversation about 90 Day Fiance, please watch the show. Or if you already watch mm-hmm. it, you know, let us know. Give us a shout out on Twitter. Be like, oh, I watched 90 Day Fiance and I have these thoughts. And, you know, maybe they'll a week bonus episode about our 90 Day Fiance. Yes. Oh, I was gonna say. Um, I was like, if you want reaction episode about it, I think, <laughs> I think that would actually be dope. Like, you know, we can we'll have a little fun, but we can also contextualize it in the same way that we contextualize all the other wild shit happening in the world. But mm. 
Anyhow, this was, I think this is a fantastic episode. So thank you all for listening. I'm sure that you enjoyed it. So if you did hear something <laughs> that you loved, made you laugh, helped you rethink something, made you question yourself or the world around you, then there are three things you can do. One, if you can spare some coin, donate to us at bit.ly slash support ZDP to make a one-time or recurring contribution. Two, you can subscribe, rate, and review the episode and share it on social media. Or three, all of the above. <laughs> yes, we welcome all the love. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, start a conversation about this episode or send us ideas for future episodes, you can find us at Zora's Daughters on Instagram and Zora's underscore daughters on twitter and head to zorasdaughters.com to find transcripts for the episodes our bios contact info and ways to support the podcast thank you brendan thank you me and thank you all <laughs> be kind to yourselves bye bye